invite you again to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We'll tell you in advance, don't know how long my voice will last, it didn't really make it through the first, but uh, we'll give it a shot, but uh, as I mentioned before, Tim Cleary, when I came in this morning, I mentioned to him, I'm overcoming the, I'm on the end of a, of a cold and lost the voice, uh, he reminded me uh, of a significant thing to consider. He said, well, when the Spirit's done talking through you, uh, there goes your voice. So that's, uh, <clears throat> so that's, uh, it was a good reminder of God's providence in, in that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we gather, we've come to meet you, we've come to honor you and praise you, We've also come to receive from you, for you have invited us to a feast uh, in which we are to eat and to drink. We are to uh, partake of your bread broken for us in the word uh, and your spirit poured out upon us. Uh, Father, we are in need of being renewed, to being reshaped, to being reformed. We pray that by your word, uh, you would help us to think your thoughts by your spirit, you would impress them upon our hearts and apply them wherever they are needed, and that in all ways we might be becoming more like Jesus. This is your promise. This is our hope. And so, Lord, we pray that as we consider your word this morning, uh, that as you speak to us in different ways, that you would do the work of chipping away what needs to be removed and putting in place that which needs to be there that we may become like Jesus, that each would be built up to full maturity, that you might be honored, and that we might delight in you. I pray these things in the incomparable name of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the gospel of the kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, has a number of aspects, as we've been looking at them for these past few weeks. Matthew uh, shows us several of them or different aspects of them. And we've been looking at these parables that God had inspired, speaking through Jesus to his disciples that we might understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we defined that a few weeks ago, that the kingdom or the kingdom is the, is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of God's people. It's not just doing what God says to do. That's part of it. It's not just feeling some feeling that, uh, that makes you feel peace or gives you goosebumps or however the feeling that we might be looking, whatever we might be looking for. It is a matter of Christ reigning in our hearts. In other words, he is the joy of our life and he is directing our lives and we find ourselves more and more in conformity with how he would have us to live and we take more and more delight as we realize how great it is how he would have us to live. We began looking at the parable of the treasure and the pearl and realized from that that Jesus is telling us that there is no sacrifice that is too great to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There is, there is nothing comparable to being longing to Jesus. And any sacrifice is worth it. It's merely an investment to have Christ and have him guiding and directing us. We looked for a couple of weeks at the parable of the soils the seed, and the sowers. And realized and were reminded of what we probably already know is that while the gospel is the seed, our hearts are not always prepared to receive it. That's true in the world when we are dealing with evangelism or when we were coming to faith in Christ. 
that the gospel seed falls on different kinds of soils in the world. And so we shouldn't be surprised at seeing different responses to the gospel. Sometimes it's fertile, and the, soil, and the seed goes in, and there is tremendous response and fruit that is born from that. At other times, it's not. Sometimes it seems to be, and it goes away. Jesus is giving this to us because there's, he tells us there's different kinds of hearts in the world. Our response is to understand that we are to be casting, sowing the seed. At the same time, we are breaking up the ground that might be hard, not through our own efforts, but by loving the people who it is that we are sharing the gospel with. As we love them, the ground sometimes is plowed up, the hard spots go, it becomes fertile, and in God's providence, the seed will bear fruit. But we also looked at this, even before we looked at the evangelistic aspect of it, we looked at this parable in relation to you and me, those of us who are already believers, and realizing that in life, our hearts go through different seasons, and we may not be as readily willing to accept the seed of the gospel as it's bearing fruit in our lives. And so we need to be mindful that our hearts are deceitful, our hearts are ever-changing. Even though the seed has taken root and is bearing fruit, when the ground becomes hard, we become hardened to the gospel. So we need to tend to our own lives as well so that the seed of the gospel will continue to bear fruit in us, which is where we gain our joy and our delight and also the fruitfulness uh, from our labors. Last week we looked at the parable of the wheat and weeds, and as we looked at that, it's just an explanation for us to understand that if Jesus is reigning, and, he is, and the kingdom is already here, even though it is still yet to come, why is there evil in addition to goodness? Not only out in the world that we can hide from, but even within the church or in our own hearts. Jesus explained that our lives are so intermingled in the world that, with the world and not in a way that is inappropriate, but we are so connected that to take all of the evil out right now would actually hurt us in a way that perhaps we don't understand. And so Jesus speaking through the parable and the wisdom of God says, God is in control. Regardless of what's going on around us, God is in control and he is working out his plan. And his plan is to allow the believers, those who are called to him to bear fruit and for the unbelievers to continue to grow up uh, alongside. And at the time of God's choosing, time that God will harvest those who belong to him, he will separate the evil, the wicked from the good at that point in time. And so we have not, and some of our questions are being answered as well as we look at these parables. This morning we turn our attention to the twin parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And I call them twin parables because, well, a lot of, a lot of Bible scholars call them twin parables and who might argue with them. Um, and it, it is appropriate, but one of the things that I, I, I need to point out is while they are twins, in, in other words, the, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, they really need to be seen as going together. They're not Siamese twins. You can separate them. You can have one without the other. And in that sense, I, I would say, with all due respect to the Bible scholars, that I would call them more married than twins. Uh, because it's appropriate when, when, somebody, when a couple gets married, uh, they do become one, and it sh really becomes inappropriate of thinking about one without the other. Even uh, th I mean, they are they become so uh, united uh, that they they go together, and each lends definition to the other, so the other fulfills. And yet they remain distinct. They they have their own identities and, and personalities and their own distinct attributes. And the same 
is true with these two parables. That we need to ultimately think of them together, but this morning we're going to look at just the first part of that, the, the parable of the, the mustard seed. They, they, they go together because uh, they help define each other, but each of them has, ha, has something important to teach us in, in, in its own right. So if you'll join with me as we, we look at God's Word, uh, our reading this morning in Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. May the Lord help us and give us understanding from his word. Now this is a very few words, and it's the shortest of the parables you'll find in all of the scriptures, but it is a wonderful overview of the Christian life. It's not exhaustive by any means, but it is far more comprehensive than we might see at first glance. Before we dig into it, we need to see what Jesus is trying to teach us. Ultimate, if we look at this, the essence of what Jesus is teaching us is this, that we should never underestimate the ultimate kingdom impact of something that is very small or something that is small at its beginning. Again, let me repeat that again. We should never underestimate the potential kingdom impact of something that is small and seemingly insignificant, or something that simply begins small. That's the essence of what Jesus is teaching in this parable. But as we look at this parable and we unpack it and we dig in in ways to help us flesh out the lessons that Jesus would have us to understand, rather than just a moral lesson of don't underestimate things, there are a lot of practical insights that we need to glean from it, and they go together to give us a fuller picture of our lives, of our lives in the kingdom. The first thing that is very simple, along with never underestimate, I would just simply see this, as it seems to be that Jesus is teaching us that appearances can be deceiving. That's an important lesson. We, we know that, but we are in a culture that is obsessed with the, the pretenses of success. And in our culture, bigger is better. Size matters, and so success is shown in any number of ways. It's success is shown in bigger bank books, bigger homes, bigger churches. Now, in this parable, I think that what Jesus is teaching us is that his, those who are his disciples ought not get intoxicated with the appearances of the outward trappings of, of success. Jesus is saying, it's not the way you think it is. Now, I think at this point, it, it may be that Jesus' disciples were beginning to ask some questions. Jesus had been ministering for a while. He'd been teaching for a while. And the disciples may have been a little perplexed and started to wonder if Jesus is the king, and we believe he is the king, and we've given our lives to following Jesus, then why aren't we having more success? Why aren't we seeing steady progress of improvement and a great number of people with us? People come, and then they go away. We can gather great crowds, but the few, there are very few that continue to walk with us and continue to stay with us. And it's a reasonable question to wonder, if Jesus is in charge, why is the number of those who are wholeheartedly following Jesus few? And those who are following him tended to be weak and insignificant. The disciples 
may have been asking at that point in time, why aren't we having greater success? New Testament scholar Leon Morris writes this, over against the mighty numbers of the worshipers of the heathen gods, and even the Jews who acknowledge the true God, those who proclaim the kingdom were a tiny minority. So it lends itself to the idea of the disciples kind of wondering what might have been going on. And at the same time as while they remained relatively few and insignificant, the opposition to Jesus was growing. And so after their successful ministries, they had not seen significant increase in their numbers, but those who disliked them, those who opposed them, that number had grown quite a bit. We would not look in our culture as that being a recipe for success in any profession whatsoever. And these guys had given their lives to it. And so no doubt this would have caused some frustration for those who loved Jesus and had committed their lives to following him. And Jesus is saying, don't underestimate anything that appears to be small and insignificant. As he's teaching this parables to his disciples, he's trying to get something through, not only to them, but to us as well. Another New Testament scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, makes this observation. He says, our gospel itself is in most measurable ways small. How does it measure up to the great philosophies and ideologies in history? Does it not seem minuscule in comparison? How can the Sunday school story of Jesus compare with the philosophy, uh, philosophies of Platonism or Marxism intellectually? And yet, experience teaches that over the long haul, precisely the story of Jesus moves men and women intellectually. It delivers meaning to them spiritually and emotionally, and it sends them into mission vocationally in a way that compares very well indeed. In other words, what Bruner is pointing out is that from a philosophical standpoint, our gospel may seem to be very small, and he's using the Sunday school aspect of it. The gospel obviously is pregnant with many implications and all theology that, that flows from it or, or to it, uh, it. All of it is important. But the gospel is also something that is so simple that a Sunday school riddle, Sunday school line, Sunday school song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know even further than that, as we think about what, how Jesus showed that he loves us, is that he came, he died, and he rose again for us. And while there are profound implications for that, that's the message of the gospel, and that is simple. And when you compare that simple message to great philosophies, it seems too simple. It may even seem silly. Not only to us, but we see it elsewhere in the scriptures. The apostle Paul declares he is in no way ashamed of the gospel. And why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Well, he says he wasn't, but apparently some were, or there may have been a temptation too, because the gospel is so simple, so small, seemingly so insignificant. It's nice. But we have real problems. We need real solutions. And a nursery rhyme story just doesn't seem to cut it for a lot of people. I think Jesus understands that in this world, we have a lot of questions. We have a lot of need. And therefore, we may have a lot of doubts. And he gives us this parable 
to help us to understand appearances can sometimes be deceiving. We should never underestimate the power and the potential in the kingdom of something that is very simple. Now, our tendency, not wanting to be unfaithful to that, knowing that we need Jesus in our lives, is to somehow think, well, we need to preserve this gospel, but we want to supplement it in some way too. We do that in our evangelistic efforts at times, or the ministry of a church, when we begin teaching people, bringing in pop psychology, the how-tos, and building our lives as much on that, still believing that Jesus is our, our way, the truth in our life, but we're bringing other things in. When we begin to explore philosophies and try to integrate them into what we teach, we bring entertainment as part of our message, thinking if we can just pack them in, then we can tell them something, and, and, if they, and if whatever it takes to get them in. In our ministries and our evangelistic outreaches, that's, those are very common things. And I understand the temptations of churches and, and leaders and Christians to want to do that. They can be very, come from very well-intended hearts. But we must be reminded that when we supplement the gospel, we are actually reducing its purity. And if we reduce its purity, we reduce its potency. If you are planting a garden and you decide that whatever it is you're planting tomatoes, that you want a tomatoes that pack more punch, and you are somehow able to splice the seed and add something else to it, what would the result be? Probably not tomatoes, and I'm not eating the ones that come up anyway. The gospel needs to be, may seem simple but it is power. It's a ministry, it's not just a matter of for ministry, not just a matter of what we proclaim in, in, in our church, it's for our own lives as well. Because we begin with the gospel and we realize the gospel is our hope, but as we live, we are so prone to want to grab onto something else in addition to the gospel in order that we might grow and reach full maturity in Christ. And so some of us cling to a set of laws. Some cling to the laws that God has established in his word, and they are good. The scripture tells us it, we know the law is good when it's used, used lawfully. The problem is we use it in a way that God didn't intend, and so therefore it doesn't produce the fruit that we want. Some people realizing that just being, limiting themselves to that, that doesn't help, they come up with laws that God didn't get around to making, figuring that they'll help God out. And so we set our own set of rules and laws. That doesn't do much either. We turn to pop psychology, we turn to philosophies, we turn to our intellect, we turn to things. And I'm not saying these are bad things. Each has their place as they relate to the truth. But they will not do what the simple and small message of the gospel will do. And so we need to realize the gospel may seem insignificant and small, but it is what God has given to us. And Jesus is reminding us, don't underestimate it. We don't need anything else. We need the power of the gospel if we're going to grow to be what God wants us to be. The gospel is sufficient, both for our lives and for the advancement of the kingdom. It may seem small at the beginning, but ultimately it will exert a powerful influence. Second thing I think that we need to see here is from this passage is that not only should we not should we realize that appearances can be deceiving but I think we see here 
that growth is both natural and supernatural at the same time. Jesus says in this parable, the mustard seed, though it is the smallest seed, when it grows, it becomes a tree. Now, I knew a mustard seed was small, but I didn't know how small, so I did a little searching on the internet and found these important facts that will help you to, uh, for your day. Apparently, each seed is smaller than the head of a pin. And it takes about 750 seeds to weigh one gram. So it is small, just as Jesus says it is. But there is also a problem that some people have found and pointed out here. There are seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. Now, we need to understand that Jesus here is not speaking as a botanist. It's not that he didn't know, but he was just speaking in a way that people that were gardeners would understand. He was speaking to the everyday ordinary Palestinian experience. And so, essentially, he's saying, look, the, the mustard seed, which it was widely believed in, at that time uh, in, that, in that area to be the smallest seed, the mustard seed is the smallest seed that you've got, and everybody was going to agree. I mean, the issue is not smaller in comparison, but the issue is it is small, the smallest thing they can think of, something that is seemingly insignificant, and Jesus is just speaking to the common people and saying, this thing that is small, When you plant it, it blossoms. In fact, it blossoms to become a great tree. The Greek word for tree is dendron, from which we get rhododendron, so you've got the idea. And yet, some people also, and particularly the hearers, everyone who listened to him, everyone who was a gardener who had mustard uh, plants in their yard, they, they would have automatically realized there's a problem in what Jesus is saying here. It wasn't so much because Jesus is wrong and he didn't need to get his facts straight, but Jesus has a significant point to make. What they would have realized is that mustard seed, one, it's planted, grows into be a bush. It never grows into being a tree. Now, some of the bushes grow to be 12 and 15 feet tall, but apparently that's even very, very rare. And so anybody who was experienced with that, they're going to say, tree? It would have grabbed their attention to find out, is this guy know what he's talking about? Or what is it this guy is talking about? Jesus knew what he was talking about. and He wanted to grab their attention, and he wants to grab our attention, too. Because it wasn't a matter of saying, here's how you can have a good garden and put lots of mustard on whatever it is that you're cooking for lunch. He was trying to help them understand the significance of the way growth takes place in the kingdom, both outwardly for the advancement of the kingdom and the reign of Christ in our hearts and our lives. It happens both naturally and supernaturally. When Jesus is speaking here, He's telling us in one sense that it happens in a very supernatural way. Because for a mustard seed to grow into a tree would take an act of God. It wasn't going to happen. It's not going to happen in a natural way. Jesus is saying, look, in one sense, as he says elsewhere, with God nothing's impossible. He's wanting to stun them. He's wanting to challenge them. He's wanting them to think, if I trust in God, what might be? That's important for us in our lives because we may be frustrated with where we are in our spiritual maturity. We may be frustrated where we see our children or our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers or your pastor is in spiritual maturity. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that we need to understand that what we see now is not the primary point. What matters most is what God will do with the pure seed of the gospel once it is planted in good soil. 
God is saying to us and reminding us is that he will produce fruit that is far greater than what we are imagining and certainly what we are seeing. Because it's God who is at work. It's not a matter of us reaching our full potential. It's a matter of us growing into being like Jesus. That's what God has promised. That's what our goal ought to be. At the same time, it's a very natural thing that is taking place here. In other words, there's, there's a role for us to play. We don't just simply wait back and say, God, okay, do your stuff. God invites us to be involved in the maturation process, and we see that in this parable by the fact that the guy, he says there's a man who took the seed and he planted it in his garden. Again, we are the sowers. We are the ones who take the seed and plant it in order that it would do its work. We scatter the seed, and we do that by preaching the gospel and evangelism, preaching the gospel to ourselves, and preaching the gospel to one another. We build one another up by reminding each other of what Jesus has done and all of the implications of it. We do that. That's our role and that responsibility, and there's a tremendous promise that God will bring out amazing things. Now, when we understand those things, two things will happen. One, we develop patience. We realize that growth tends to take time. Lack of evidence of growth is not the same as no growth. Slow growth is not the same as no growth. It's been a long time since uh, anybody in my house has watched Barney. I'm thankful for that. Um, and, uh, but I do have vividly embedded, indelibly embedded, I think, into my psyche or, or whatever, at least one episode. In one episode, there was a little red-haired boy who was, went to school, and he brought a little sprout in a Dixie cup. And while the other children were laughing and playing, the little boy was just kind of staring at his Dixie cup. He was watching, waiting to see if something was, was to grow. And so Barney calls all the children around and explains to uh, two of them all that the sprout is not going to come up overnight. It takes time before there's an evidence of any growth. And in many cases, that's true for us as well. What we long to be, it may take some time, but not seeing the evidence tomorrow of what you want it to be today is not the same as saying God is not at work in me. Over time, we see the reality of God's work in us, and we develop patience. So if you are someone who is frustrated with your spiritual growth or where you are, or frustrated with people around you, realize God works over a period of time. He is at work, nevertheless. And we also, if we understand that spiritual growth is both natural and supernatural, we become a people who become dependent and committed to the means of grace. In other words, we, we realize there's a role for us to play, and that we cultivate the seed by doing what God has instructed us to do through prayer, through studying the word where the gospel is explained and continues to be tended, and through coming to the table or as we come to the table or as we think of our own baptisms whenever anyone is baptized in our church or wherever we may be. These are means of grace that God has said, you know what, these are not just memorial things. By doing these things, by participating in these things, they help cultivate our faith, and through our faith, we grow, we are strengthened. We need to realize, too, that once we grow, once we are become what we want to be, or even if we can't even imagine what we're going to be, that God has something in mind. And the third thing, and the last thing that I want you to see from this passage, is that our growth is for a greater purpose than ourselves. 
In this passage, there's a rather peculiar phrase here, and it would have certainly been stunning to the people who heard it the first time. In this passage, in verse 32, you'll read, after it has grown to be larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, and then the last sentence, part of that sentence says, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That would have been a rather peculiar statement to hear for the people listening. In fact, it may have been actually a scandalous statement to hear. It would have caused great fear in the original hearers, and it may cause fear in the lives of some believers as they consider what it seems Jesus means by this. While there's not a consensus among scholars as to what the birds represent, the, the vast majority of the scholars suggest that the birds are represent the Gentiles. Jesus is speaking primarily to Jewish people who have nothing to do with the Gentiles, and basically he's saying they're going to come and they're going to nest in your hair. That would be a problem. Let's know what New Testament scholar Michael Green says. He says, the image of the birds coming to roost would have been eloquent, but rather ominous to those reared on the Old Testament. It is the Gentiles who are in mind. Jesus is hinting not only that this apparently tiny seed will grow to a remarkable size, but it will spread beyond the narrow confines of Judaism and provide a home for the Gentiles. What Jesus is saying here is, in short, this, this little seed that has borne fruit in us and made us become part of the citizens of the kingdom of God, children of God, when it bears ultimate fruit, it's not about you and me. It's not just us. It's not just us that we gather together. God has a purpose that's intended to bring all the nations in as well. And the means by which he's going to do that is that we will be used in very practical ways to meet very practical needs. Why do the birds of the air need to rest in a tree? I suspect because they get tired of flapping their wings. They need to sleep or rest at some point or another. A very real need, a very tangible need is being met here. And I think that Jesus is giving us a picture here of the kingdom. It's a promise that growth is taking place in us and will take place around us. He explains to us through the uh, stunning statements of how that takes place, both supernaturally and naturally. But once that growth takes place, once we are to a point of maturity, we don't exist just for ourselves, just to look pretty and God is glorified. There's a functional thing for the believers of Christ, for Christ's church as well. That we need to be available to meet the practical needs, not just of one another, but even of people who do not belong to us. It's a picture of the call to mercy that we find throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and rampant in Jesus' life. We exist to meet practical needs. The birds needed a place to rest, they needed a home. They were provided for in God's people. Now, it's metaphorical, and so it doesn't have any limitations, but it is a clear, clear statement, at least to me, to tell us that when we reach full maturity, we are people who are beneficial to our neighbors, whether they like us or not, or whether we're comfortable with them or not. There's the picture of the kingdom, of what we're for. And yet, even if we're uncomfortable with it, as certainly the original hearers were, just a reminder that God is not done with us yet. And over and over we find in the scripture, we find great joy when we conform ourselves to what God wants us to do. We may not be there, individual or even as a church yet, but this is where God would have us to go. This is what it means to be mature. We need to remember 
And it's not things that appear great that are ultimately going to produce the most fruit. Let me just wrap it up with an illustration from my own experience. I, uh, I play golf. I sometimes enjoy playing golf when I go. Those of you who golf understand that. Those of you who don't play golf, well, you'll just have to play to understand. And as a golfer, I, I um, have a, a enough club speed that I'm able to consistently be over 275, driving the ball, and, and occasionally hit 300, especially if it's downhill. Um, but rarely is it a straight 300. Um, it goes wherever it feels like. Uh, it's a conspiracy of every ball in my bag. And I consistently play with guys who don't hit the ball as far as I do. But at the end of the day, they score a whole lot better. And it's a tangible reminder, there's an axiom in, axiom in golf that says this, it's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. That's true for you today. If you are new to the faith and you see others around you who just seem giants of the faith, don't worry about where they are. What seems little will be potent. That's true for you if you're here today and you feel weak in your faith. You may have been a believer for a long time and you feel weak. God is continuing to be at work in you and over time as you renew yourself in the gospel, you will see tremendous fruit. This is God's promise. We need to be reminded that it is that appearances are deceiving. God is at work both through natural and supernatural things, and he is preparing us to bless the world in accordance with the covenant he made with Abraham where he said, I will bless you that you will be a blessing. In accordance to his instructions to his people in Jeremiah 29, many of us are familiar with the Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Back up a few verses when he tells them why they are where they are, why they're not in their own country, why they are aliens. He says, I put you where you are, that you just get involved, make homes, that you will be a blessing to the nations, to the peoples. And then he says, if, if, if you bless them as, as they prosper, then you'll benefit as well. Time and time again, God's covenant people are placed wherever they're placed, and we are placed here in order that we receive the blessings, that we can be strengthened in him, in order that God would bless people through us as well. We may not feel up to it, and in our church, the stage at this right now, we're neither small nor are we large. That's probably true for most of the people here as well. We need to realize that God is at work. If he can use small things, he can use you, and he can use us. As long as we don't forget and don't underestimate small things with small beginnings. Let me pray. Father, as we come this morning, I do pray that you would bless us with this perspective. As this would serve as one more brick in, in, the, in our foundation to strengthen us, to set us uh, in, in, uh, in where you would have us to be. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with your truth. We pray that you would mature us according to your promise, that we would be a blessing to those who are around us, that we might have joy that we may not even know, 
we can experience. We know this pleases you. We pray this with great confidence, for this is your promise and your instruction. We know that you are at work. Bless us, we pray in Jesus.